Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Singapore at a new stage, a very different stage of the battle against COVID-19, say authorities. Uh, we know that as of yesterday, the number of totally of new locally transmitted cases was 664, but 81% of our total population has completed the full regimen. So I think a lot of people are reading these numbers in the context of how many of us have been fully vaccinated, 81%, two doses, and 83% of us have received the first dose. So I think people think, okay, you know, which areas should I now avoid or what can I do to keep myself safe? And if I have to socialize once a day, sure, I can do that. Health risk warnings and health risk alert are going to be issued when new clusters are detected. Workers from more sectors are going to undergo fast and easy routine tests and uh, companies and sectors that are not subject to mandatory testing will get eight ART kits per employee. Just some of the measures that we're taking to slow the transmission and get more of us vaccinated. Um, At the same time, uh, I think people understand that we, we need to do our part to help keep the situation under control. And MOH has said it will no longer report the number of linked and unlinked new COVID cases. It's revamping its COVID-19 press releases and also is going to be giving out uh, that daily update on the COVID-19 situation. Uh, now we get it twice a day, but we're going to get just one daily update on the COVID-19 situation. I quite like knowing the number of linked and unlinked new cases every day. You know, read it in context, of course, of the number of people getting vaccinated. But it gave me a sense of, okay, should I be cutting down, um, going out as much? What should I be doing for myself? So that's how I used it. I thought it was useful. Uh, But we're here to discuss with Arun Pai how markets are reacting to Singapore learning to live with COVID. Arun Pai is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Arun, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? Doing good. So yesterday, Arun, we saw the Straits Times Index dropping one and a quarter percent to about 3068. Singapore, one of the worst performing Asian bourses yesterday. To what extent is this due to where we are in the battle against COVID? How do you think markets are reacting to the way Singapore is trying to live with COVID? I mean, in the very short term, like these daily mark-to-market moves, we can expect them to be somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction. Right. So in that regard, as and when cases flare up a bit more and there's, as you were mentioning, there's a little bit more fear out there on the streets. Maybe we should not go out. Maybe we should just stay indoors. Naturally, business will businesses will get a little bit affected. Mm. And that's what we saw, you know, with the whole Jordan Matson group. Also, there were these headlines that were coming out uh, over this week on how the total market cap of their entire conglomerate is like down $5 billion because they own stakes in Dairy Farm International that own stakes in Guardians and so on and so forth. I think in the short term, uh, we will be seeing these whipsaw movements, but they're not going to be as large as what we saw last year in you know March, April, May. Because the market has kind of digested this to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I believe that unless there's extreme news on either end, right, either we have a lockdown because this is going to be uh, not just like a a lockdown that we saw in the last couple of times, but like a major lockdown because of a 
variation coming out, which is either spreads really quickly, the mortality rate is a lot higher, vaccinations are not as impactful. I think that could be one extreme. And the other extreme that's hopefully that eventually does happen is that 81 slash 84% of vaccination, fully vaccination versus one shot, goes up to like 90 plus, and we are seeing this uh, Delta variant kind of die down mm. and or hospitalizations not taking place. I think that'll, that just means that the market, which has already lived with it for the past year odd, I mean, year to date, you mentioned yesterday, year to date, we're still up like seven, 8%. Mm. Is that as much as the S&P, you know, 20 plus and others? No, but I mean, that's still okay because given the surroundings of Singapore, the impact of COVID has been tremendous. Like Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, really struggling with this outbreak and factories are completely shut. And Singapore is just a microcosm of what's happening around the ASEAN region. So naturally, the place, you know, our index will get affected. So still strong investor confidence in your opinion? My perspective is, even with this, you know, yesterday and day before news of increase of cases and everything, mm. I think investors need to take the bigger picture. I still believe there's a lot of, you know, underlying strength that is out here. I think in it's going to take a little bit more time just given the nature of the geography and the size of the populations of Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, as compared to Singapore, that can be more tightly controlled. But I do believe that production lines for vaccination rates are shooting higher. And, even you know, for better or worse, the fact that people in the U.S. Uh, are pretty much done either taking the virus or they're making the call that they will not be taking the virus, given the shelf life of these things, there will come a time when the U.S. is going to start shipping them across to the rest of the world. And I believe vaccination rates in countries around Singapore are going to start increasing quite substantially towards the next two or three months. Right. Malaysia came out with the news that by, I think, October 15th, they will classify this as an endemic uh, case. And hence, the vaccination rates will be over 75 percent and life can move on. And talking to friends in London and New York, which have very high vaccination rates, that's exactly what's happening. So on the back of all of that, on the back of that good news, which I hope we'll start seeing a lot more of in the next couple of months, especially in surrounding countries in Singapore, that will lead to, you know, businesses start doing well. The market starts seeing that they're a precursor to you don't need the business to actually start printing money before the market starts taking a cue out of it. I hope that the market will start seeing vaccination rates across and then we'll start seeing some index uh, price appreciation. Let's keep our eyes on good news on the vaccination race front. Absolutely agree with you there. A week ago here in Singapore, switching gears, we saw about 12 companies buying back their own shares, including Hobie Land, Straits Trading Companies. Can you help investors understand what this means? Why are companies buying back their own shares? Sure. Uh, buying back shares, the concept as a whole, right? It can be extremely advantageous to the remaining owners of the business, which are basically the shareholders that do not sit and sell their shares to the company. And why is that? Because all the multiples start looking a lot better, right? You have fewer number of outstanding shares, hence earnings per share is higher because your denominator, the amount of shares outstanding is lower. Mm. This gives a very positive sign to the market that of two factors. Okay. One, management is very confident about its own balance sheet, which means that they have enough cash on hand to deploy. And the best use that they have found of this capital is to buy back, hopefully, their undervalued shares 
in the market. The question that the more savvier investor should always ask whenever any management makes this kind of a decision is whether this is in the benefit of the long-run interest of a stakeholder. So what I mean by that is it's not, you know, you deploy a certain amount of capital today, you see a nice little share price pop over the next couple of days, then you look to try and sell your shares out, try and monetize that gain, and then hope to get back into that name in the next couple of months. It's all very complicated and cumbersome, right? Instead, what the fiduciary responsibility of the directors of the company that make this call is to ensure that the long-term interests of their shareholders are protected. So the question is whether this is actually taking place or not. And that's when, you know, 10 companies in the Straits Times, like you mentioned, give or take, were buying back shares. Overall perspective, that could be quite good. We've seen some recent weakness in the STI index. Month to date, it's down about, or for the last 30 days, sorry, it's down about three, three and a half percent. Potentially, directors are taking heed of that and, you know, getting themselves involved in buying back their shares. But let's not make a mistake about this. As I was mentioning earlier, the index is still, you know, on a relatively high level. This is not the global financial crisis, nor is this at the absolute peak uh, or nadir, whichever way you want to look at it, of the COVID pandemic, which we saw in March. So is this returning of capital the best, is, is it looking after the best interest of shareholders in the long run? Splitting across those 10 companies uh, that were buying back shares, to me, what's the most interesting one is your developers, your land or construction-related companies. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they've been hit quite badly on the back of COVID, obviously, government regulation in terms of taxes, and the borders being locked, right? Which means a lot of their labor force can't come into the market. These guys are trading at like fractions of price to book, and I personally can see some interesting spots of value here where uh, investor can benefit not just from their dividends, but also from uh, the company buying back its own shares. So in that regard, that's a sector that I'm looking a lot more closer, contrarian look at, I would say, to start scaling up in some of those names a little bit more. All right. Arun Pai joining us this morning, helping us understand questions that have come my way. And I thank you all for sending me questions as well on Instagram. Love connecting with you. I'm at Michelle Martin Radio. You can send me any question you have on investing and I'll try to find the best person to speak to about it and hopefully get you some, some good answers there. All right. Let's talk about the Neek the new Neek Select Layer, or China's third stock exchange. China has plans to set up a third stock exchange. Um, it's called the Neek Select Layer, and we're expecting it to launch in a few months' time. So the aim is to actually better help small and mid-sized Chinese businesses use the stock market to raise capital, hopefully keep them from going abroad. We know that uh, new Chinese stock exchanges tend to perform well after a launch. So for an investor... You might be thinking, is there an opportunity to profit by buying in early? But we have scant details now. Uh, we do know of the 66 stocks that were are, are going to be on this new exchange. We did see a sort of a 10% pop for, for all of them. Arun, help us understand this third exchange and its impact on Chinese shares. Yeah, honestly, Michelle, it was a bit bewildering to me also. So I don't know whether I'm an expert at uh, trying to answer this question or just be equally a bit clueless, to be honest. 
it's it, it's strange because okay, uh, you know, coming up with a new exchange, having this concept, you have Shanghai for large company listing, you have Shenzhen for tech companies. This SME index concept is quite new uh, to in investors, at least it is to me, right? Why would this potentially boost some share prices of SME businesses? Who it's not just SMEs; they have to be looking to be innovation driven. So it's all a little bit hazy as to what exactly this index will mean, and hence, because it's so hazy, mm. why would that lead to certain number of stocks popping? The way I look at it is, at least I would hope this is the way that it's going to happen in China. The mm. positive aspect is that President Xi and CCP is still going down the market reform route, which means let the market kind of dictate, uh, which is potentially the most efficient mechanism that we have, at least at present, is let the market dictate what kind of valuations should be given to the companies giving them an avenue to raise capital to try and grow and try and become bigger and more streamlined operations, more streamlined profit centers. Be it in overarching the China style of capitalism, it's very refreshing to see, especially after the last, I don't know, two weeks to a month of some pretty terrible news coming out of China mm. on how they want to try and control companies. Giving them this route of going public uh, being publicly traded, that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope is, you know, President Xi and the CCP realizing, okay, we've gone to a certain extreme with these large businesses to try and clamp them down. That does not mean that the overarching theme of the China form of capitalism is not fully still prevalent and raring to go over here. And then this could be a signal to let the smaller companies know, look, we don't mean to get into your business. We hope that you become larger. If you do become a multi, like a, a more than a hundred billion dollars market cap and have access to a billion of our uh, citizens' data, we will come clamping down on you. But this is the route for you to become a millionaire or like you know a, a, a deca millionaire. I hope that is what's going to be happening, and I hope this exchange does well because it'll facilitate a lot of innovation from the ground up, from these old school SMEs trying to transition into this digital age. And from that regard, I think it's quite a positive sign. So is the, that enough? Uh, is that enough for like these mm. ten companies to pop up? I don't know. <laughs> mm. I mean, the early list of companies set to be included in this third exchange. What do you think of the valuation? I think they're looking at um, thirty-two times. You know, how does that compare to sort of other the CSI three hundred, for example? Extremely frothy, right? Like the the Chinese index, and it could be. I mean, comparing just numbers to numbers, mm. uh, it might not be the right way, right? Because you have a lot of headwinds for these larger companies, and hence we've seen the likes of Alibaba, Tencent, all dropping at least thirty percent from uh, their peaks. And now mm. these companies that are the beacon of technology development and growth, they are trading at, I would like to say, very extremely multiples of 22, 23 forward PE. So in that regard, you know, trading at like a multiples of 30 for these SMEs that do not have such a clear line of growth could be a little bit questionable. But again, right, headwind for these large companies, tailwind for these small companies that the government is trying to push out. So does that justify the multiples? I think for a person who's not in China and not as familiar with 
at least the smaller companies and their road of growth and hence profitability, I think that's a bit of a tough question for me to answer. Mm -hmm. As an investor externally based out of China, peering in, I do find pockets of value in these larger tech companies and I've started scaling in in them Mm. with the hope that the positive news of the government trying to help smaller companies would be a good thing in the long run. Yeah, I think that's how people are reading this, that China is looking to help and not harm these uh, smaller companies in the innovation space. It's required, Michelle. Like the the headlines were really scary, right? Like you can't sit and have, not just like sending regulators or calling to task the directors of the companies to come over to your office, Mm -hmm. forcefully getting involved in getting stakes in those businesses, getting a board of directors seat so that you know what's happening in the company not real time, but, you know, maybe once a month or once a quarter when they have your board meetings mm-hmm. and directly being influential in making the decision, not just controlling the decision. That's something that made me quite afraid and is still making me quite afraid. So any kind of news like this that mm-hmm. will help the ecosystem in the Chinese capitalist way is something that I really look forward to reading a lot more of. Well said. Speaking of aggressive moves, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's chair, Gary Genslow, has put cryptocurrency on notice, uh, threatening to sue Coinbase if the exchange lets customers earn interest on their digital tokens. And the SEC has sent warnings to other firms that, you know, do allow you to sort of deposit your digital tokens with them and give you an interest rate, some up to 4%. I think that's what Coinbase's uh, planned for their lending program would have done. Meanwhile, we've seen Bitcoin slump this even after El Salvador said they were going to adopt cryptocurrency as legal tender. Some say, well, that that adoption turned out to be pretty messy. And so Bitcoin's fall has dragged down the rest of the cryptocurrency world as well. Some say that's a key holdout. There's Solana's SOL token. But what lessons do you think investors can take from the Bitcoin pullback that if this is to do, this is a momentum driven trade and this just comes with the pie? I mean, first and foremost, there should be a massive warning label saying buyer beware when anyone even thinks of clicking buy on any of these cryptocurrency coins. It's it honestly, it's just par for the course, right? Like we've seen this story repeat itself numerous times in the past. Over the course of just the last like, you know, three or five years, this concept that cryptocurrency or Bitcoin very specifically, and maybe Ether to some extent, like the top two market cap uh, altcoins uh, or cryptocurrency space coins, uh, this concept of it being a store of value and comparing that to gold is ludicrous. Like, uh, And sadly, the citizens of El Salvador have faced the full brunt of it it's very strange, firstly, I should say, that the day it actually does become legal tender, everything crashes over there. Mm. And and the sad thing is, you know, you have no idea who's actually controlling on a day-to-day basis these kind of volatile market moves in Bitcoin. There are these research reports that have come out saying there's a whole consortium of whales, which are basically large investors in this Bitcoin space that can move markets one way or the other. Is this leading to like political instability as and when? Because, you know, uh, probability is such that the companies that are 
getting uh, the countries, sorry, I should say, that are getting the most affected by be it weak currencies or runaway inflation in their domestic market, they're the ones who might look to adopt uh, stuff like Bitcoin as their official payment. But then comes the angle of who's actually kind of controlling the price. And I can appreciate, you know, the market is controlling the price for freely tradable currencies. But then there's an aspect of the central bank knowing which funds, which players are actually selling or buying. And like MAS, right, it actually goes up to the banks and asks them, okay, what was your rationale for selling 5 billion Singapore dollars yesterday? Is that on the back of a market move? Is that on the back of other information? Are you being required to do that by a client, etc.? In the case of Bitcoin, there is no such concept. So is there some, you know, under the world, uh, you know, dark world tradings that are taking place to try and increase political instability? No idea. Is this the bottom line, though, what's actually happened is that the retail investors have gotten uh, massively hit by this. Mm. Why do I say that? Institutional investors, they might have gotten burnt the first time. You might have small funds that are out there who are extremely leveraged, knowing fully well what they're getting themselves into. And hence, uh, if they go bust overnight because of a 20% move, and if they're leveraged more than five times, their equity capital invested into this space completely gets wiped out, that's okay. The problem is retail, have they taken their life savings or a substantial part of it, dumped it into this, taken too much leverage to buy this asset class and only gone about to see this amount disappear overnight, literally. Like there are many platforms, including Coinbase, where I have seen leverage being offered of 10 times, 50 times, I saw one small platform offering a hundred times leverage. A hundred times leverage means the underlying literally needs to move by 1% and you're basically wiped out or you've made truckloads of money. Mm. So, and, and that's this kind of greed that these platforms are trying to create in retail investors. There was this really famous example, mm. and I forget the name of this platform, mm-hmm. uh, that provided leverage on the foreign exchange side. Right, Mm -hmm. And even in the foreign exchange markets, a lot of leverage is provided to investors. Mm -hmm. But the difference is currencies move typically like half a percent or one percent in a day. This platform provided a lot of leverage to retail investors and did not bother to hedge themselves on the other side. So what I mean by that is, say, retail customer X bought $10 million uh, thing via a platform the platform was literally taking the other side. It was not going out into the market and hedging itself. And why were they doing that? Because probability and history showed that these retail investors would go bankrupt because of the leverage being provided. So being on the other side of that position is just money-making. And that's not the role of a platform, yet they were doing that because they could see tens of thousands of retail investors taking leverage. That was being provided by the platform, going bankrupt, and the platform is making bank. That's the issue. And that's why we're seeing a lot more regulation now coming into this space, like dangling the carrot of give us your underlying cryptocurrency. We will give you 4%. Give you 4% mm. Right? Like that's the first step. Mm. Then they'll say, okay, you know what? Since you're having so much of this extra capital, why don't you try and lever up a lot more? And it just goes down this path of trying to incite greed in the retail investor. And we all know how greed eventually turns out in the marketplace. There'll be three people who make millions of dollars 
get onto Instagram and show that Ferrari that's related to uh, on the back of their Bitcoin making money, mm. you don't even know if that's true or not, or they're just being paid by these platforms. Mm. But then you'll have the 99% of the other people who sadly, you know, lose their shirts completely because of leverage. Very uh, scary. Very frightening, very sobering points there, but definitely worth considering anytime you're even thinking about leverage. Thank you, Arun, for joining us this morning. My pleasure as always. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Arun Pai joining us in this edition of Money and Me. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. So Bitcoin uh, really looking like it's testing those uh, 41,000, 43,000 price levels. Could the crypto be on the verge of ending its bull run? from late July. We'll continue to track the story for you, of course. Uh, but if you, like me, are coming up with excuses to not go out, you know, because you have to fend off all these invitations. Do you want to have drinks on Friday? No, 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 I don't. I will see you Friday, people, another time, though. Uh, here's Stephen Colbert with some excuses that you can, you know, use the next time. I, I just thought his, this song is so hilarious. All my friends are vaccinated. They want to hit the cricket on the dance floor But I don't want to put on my outside clothes Got a lot of invites to ignore So if you're just like me If you're just like we Let me and my crew tell you what to do If you don't want to see nobody Then hit them with them four excuses, y'all One Two, tell them that you're stuck in quicksand. Three, tell them you're possessed by a ghost. Or four, tell them that your head got caught in the door. Everybody's saying stuff like <laughs> Stephen Colbert's uh, four excuses that you can use. I think you gave at least eight there. Thanks so much for listening to us here on Your Money. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg. Or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.